The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Ten years ago this summer, a crisis started unfolding that had been building for years and which would not really explode into the mainstream for another year. But make no mistake, in the summer of 2007, some things started happening in the capital markets that some people saw that that presaged what was going to come in the Great Panic of 2008. Welcome to Money Beat. I am Paul Vigna. Steve Grosser, not here today, stuck on a subway train. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The, the summer of hell for Manhattan commuters continues. And now, folks, you have been robbed of Stephen Grosser for this podcast. But we will move on. Uh, ben Eisen, Chris Dietrich here with me in the studio. Gentlemen, thank you for stepping in. Thank you. Thank you. And on the phone to talk about this this topic, we are joined by Matthew Rothman, who is head of global quantitative equity research at Credit Suisse here in New York. Matthew, how are you? Terrific. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, we're glad to have you on. And you were, it's interesting, uh, folks, if you really want a, a, a good rundown of what Matthew was going through a decade ago, pick up our colleague Scott Patterson's book, The Quants. I got to give a plug for Scott. He's a good friend of mine. So anytime I can, I can help him out, I want to help him out, Matt. Um, one decade ago, 2007, the summer 2007, there's a long lead up, a long wind up, folks. Sorry about that. Uh, so, Matt, a decade ago, you were going to pitch some business and you were kind of really watching this thing live, this event unfold that we're about to talk about. Why don't you tell us what was going on a decade ago? Sure. Um, so, you know, quantitative strategies uh, in this, uh, by the summer of 2007 had become uh, quite popular um, and there was uh, significant assets uh, in there. Um, and we uh, had players who were running with significant leverage um, uh, at that time, particularly uh, a number of multi-strat strateg- uh, strategies and managers uh, who were running books with fixed income securities, uh, subprime securities, uh, as well as uh, equity securities. Um, and if you remember back to the summer of 2007, that was a time when the subprime crisis really started to come to head. Uh, we had those uh, famous hedge fund managers uh, at Bear Stearns mm-hmm. uh, who were uh, having some very tough times, um, imploding a little bit. Um, and in general, uh, those that asset class was uh, under distress uh, high, and highly illiquid. And people were taking, uh, were, were, were seeing some losses in those portfolios. And so what basically started to happen was that contagion from that part of the market really started to bleed over uh, into the equity markets uh, and quantitative managers uh, who were under distress from those other portfolios began to liquidate their quantitative equity portfolios, and we kind of saw a little bit of a run on the bank uh, going on um, at that time in what was a fairly opaque portion uh, of the market that caused uh, significant pain for a number of very prominent uh, managers during basically a week in August uh, 10 years ago. And now, Matthew, this was this was a, a pretty much a year before the, the peak of the financial crisis, and yet you started seeing these liquidations. What was it about these quant funds that was taking place that sort of caused this to unravel sort of before a lot of the the other sort of 
big, big things that happen in the market later on. You know, in in many ways, you know, it really was the canary in the coal mine for the bigger crisis that happened. Um, you know, specifically what happened was that you saw these managers who had illiquid, um, you know, subprime, um, you know, portfolios, uh, fixed income portfolios on their books, and they were receiving margin calls uh, on those assets. And you know, in a in a and they were very illiquid. And so, in that situation, the last thing you want to do is actually sell that asset um, because then the mark to, the mark on those portfolios uh, comes down. You need to raise more margin, um, more capital to support them, uh, and you get into a vicious circle very quickly. And so, those managers were quite smart. And what they decided to do was sell the most liquid portions uh, of their books, which were unrelated to. The subprime books um, and liquidate, you know, U.S. large cap equities, and they can they did that, and the pressure kind of kept mounting, and they kept needing to raise capital, and so the liquidations began to um, spiral, and other managers didn't quite understand what was going on. This market, they just saw their portfolios beginning to suffer as these other managers were unwinding, um, and they didn't know why. And so they started to de-risk uh, as, their be- as their portfolios misbehaved, um, and that caused further losses uh, in these kind of quantitative equity portfolios. And again, people didn't understand what was happening, um, and so people started to de-risk even further, um, and more losses occurred, <laughs> and the whole thing began to spiral um, a little bit out of control because there was really no transparency in the market and no one really understood what was happening and what the behavior was going on of other managers. Uh, and so it really became that classic run on the bank phenomenon um, just because everyone was responding to each other's behavior in this kind of vicious feedback loop. Right. It's it's also interesting, though, to note, right? I mean, mo- th- this pain that you're talking about, pretty extreme for the quantitative managers, might might have gone otherwise unnoticed by sort of casual observers to the stock market, though, right? I mean, it's, it was pretty concentrated. The S&P at that time was, was fairly flat. Yes. Um, the S&P, that, that, that was one of the more remarkable things, is that the market as a whole was very calm. Uh, during this, it was just this little corner of the world um, wasn't so little. Little uh, there was probably two trillion dollars of assets under management, but given the broad market of twenty-seven trillion or so, um, it still was relatively tiny. But if you had any kind of exposure to the styles that quant managers were investing in, uh, value, momentum, growth quality, if your portfolios were tilted in any of those ways, you began to see some of that pain also um, as those styles began to to misbehave. But the market as a whole um, was relatively flat. You know, it's, it's interesting, at least, um, you know, for anyone who has been following the, you know, growth in things like exchange-traded funds and this, this sort of realm of smart beta, which is really kind of a marketing um, kind of tactic packaged around factor styles that, that are what were impacted a decade ago. I mean, let's spin this forward, given the popularity of some of these things. I mean, you know, what lessons can we start to think about um, from this sort of quant quake episode of a decade ago, especially given that things like momentum, things like value that you just mentioned are, you know, perhaps even more on the radar for all styles of investors? You know, I think there are two lessons um, about this that are really important. One was that people were running with extraordinary leverage. Um, uh, at that time. I certainly knew managers who were running uh, 20 to 1 aside um, during that period. 
Um, and I knew large asset managers with billions and billions of dollars under management who were running eight to one aside. Six to one aside was very common. Um, you know, that kind of leverage is out of the system uh, at this point, uh, at those degrees. Uh, you're not seeing that. And certainly in the ETF smart beta uh, funds, you don't see them running really with any leverage. And I think that leverage was really important because it made people less able to handle any kind of hiccup. Um, and we don't see that with the smart beta funds. Uh, and so I think we should be careful about drawing too many extrapolations just because people are in those strategies that, th that they're susceptible to the same kind of unwinding behavior. Um, and the second point is that in August 2007, it was really revolutionary to have a simple swap that was trading in real time that told you how value was doing. Uh, we had that at Lehman Brothers, where I was during those days, and I had just launched my product, and so we kind of had state-of-the-art technology, and we could actually show people how value was moving, how momentum was moving, tick by tick. Um, that transparency otherwise wasn't there, and that was part of the problem. Today, people, if something was like this to happen, um, people would know it a lot, a lot better because of some of these smart beta funds that are out there that actually tell you how things are behaving. And so I think people are much less likely to panic because they can see it and feel it and touch it a lot more. And so ironically, some of the, some of the growth of these products actually serve to help. All right, let's take a break here. When we come back, more with Matthew Rothman and what started 10 years ago this summer and what would become a year later the greatest financial crisis that any of us had ever seen, certainly in our lifetimes. We are talking about the crisis that started in 2007, moved into 2008. You are listening to Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Love tech? Dig gadgets? Then make tech news briefing from the Wall Street Journal a part of your day. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul Vigna here in this studio without Stephen Grosser, who remains stuck on a subway somewhere in New York City, underneath the ground as it is. I'm joined by Ben Eisen and Chris Dietrich. And on the phone, we have Matthew Rothman, who is head of global quantitative equity research at Credit Suisse. But something that people may not know, Matthew, and I think this is kind of interesting, this will certainly color what you just said in the last segment, is that a decade ago, the summer of 2007, you were the chief quantitative strategist at Lehman Brothers. So how I find it fascinating. You were so you were working for Lehman Brothers. You saw this big storm coming that one year later would would swallow up Lehman Brothers. What happened in the time between when you started to see this happening and September 20, 2008, when Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy? You know, I think the the one thing we should make sure is uh, to understand is that, you know, what brought Lehman down uh, in many ways were some of the same issues 
that we saw uh, unfolding in, in quant equity, mm-hmm. um, the, the excess use of leverage, the evaporation of liquidity, um, uh, and, 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 you know, kind of originating in fixed income. Um, but they were completely different issues uh, from what actually happened in quantitative equity funds. And I think to kind of, you know, I, I just want to make sure that everyone understands that quant equity managers uh, who were running strategies were in no way responsible um, for uh, the demise of, of, of Lehman Brothers. Um, yeah, I, I, I was not trying to go there. I was not. That's not. <laughs> that's not at all what I was trying to push you into saying. So, uh, um, I just want to make that very clear yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for for a number of us. I mean, I think the problems that we saw uh, uh, at Lehman. Um, you know, were around liquidity, mm-hmm. um, and 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 were about the uh, you know willingness of management to um, grapple with those issues and understand them, um, and 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 how how you respond in a situation where you, where you have a lot of that uh, kind of going on. Um, what what is almost kind of taboo to say in these these days um, is that Lehman was a great firm. Um, it was a very entrepreneurial firm uh, with a lot of wonderfully smart people and a terrific culture. Um, and, you know, the, the, the rules that I played by and the rules that my partners uh, in global markets played by um, were terrific. And we had wonderfully entrepreneurial people that allowed me to kind of build the products out that I have and were wonderful partners. Uh, the rules at the top of the firm and how that was playing, I think, were, were very different. Um, and I think that upset a lot of us who were at the firm at that time. Um, but it was a wonderfully entrepreneurial uh, firm um, that did some great things and was very innovative. You, you know, what amazed me about it, and I want Ben to, and Chris to get in, I'm not trying to leave you guys out, but it was, what, what is amazing to me about it is I think people forget that the year before, in, in 2007, Lehman had had a record year in terms of revenue and profit. Uh, the, the firm was really, look, all the Wall Street banks were doing well in those years. I mean, I'm pretty sure they're probably all having record years. But it is just amazing to me that they had a record year and nine months later they went out of business. It is really quite stunning. Um, you know, and, and I, I guess it just tells you how fragile institutions are um, at times, uh, especially when you're running with leverage and how nimble um, you need to be uh, as management and, um, and as you kind of, as the mu- music changes. Um, that you can change uh, with it and see market conditions. Running these big global banks is, you know, very complicated. Yeah, and I think that gets into something that, that I want to ask. I mean, you described uh, QuantQuake as sort of a canary in the coal mine. I mean, to the extent that it was that, um, you know, were the people around you sort of heeding the warnings that that was sending about what was to come? Or, you know, how was, the, how was that interpreted at the time? I think there are people um, who saw some of these things um, that were happening. Um, I think if you go back and read Too Big to Fail um, by uh, Andrew uh, Ross Sorkin, um, he kind of gives you a very good detailed history of there were some people in the firm uh, who saw it uh, and were ignored. Um, I think it's very hard when things are going so well and someone tells you to shut down a business um, that uh, it's very hard to hear those kind of messages. Uh, and I think, um, you know, Andrew Sorkin, Ross Sorkin, does a, does a wonderful job of detailing that out, um, you know, uh, and, and so uh, kudos to him there. But, it, it, you know, you know, catching, you know, and being able to time markets or time businesses or time all of these things is just incredibly difficult. You know, you know, one other question I had, and this skips back to something you said before the break when we we're trying to extrapolate some of the lessons maybe of a decade ago into the present day where, you know, a lot of this wasn't 
you know, when these factor uh, quantitative strategies were moving around, it was less transparent than it is now. Now you can see, you know, an iShares momentum, you know, style in real time. And and your point there was maybe that that transparency could help prevent it. But couldn't you also make the opposite case where, you know, I could open up my brokerage account and see that, you know, those, those, those things are down a lot and maybe I'm as just sort of a retail investor, more likely to sell. Couldn't couldn't you also, you know, make the case that 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 could actually exacerbate or accelerate the selling this time around? It's sort of an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I what was important, and I think you have to distinguish what you know made August two thousand and seven so remarkable is not so much that just momentum failed or that value failed. But everything failed at the exact same time, um, and everything unwound. We see rotations in the market all the time where momentum doesn't work, um, or where value doesn't work, or technology comes in or out of favor. But what we saw in August 2007 was a wholesale failure of every strategy. And so people beginning being able to whip momentum around in and out you know, it's problematic for, for quants. It's problematic for any part of the investors. Like, you know, market segment, it makes it hard to, to give alpha. But what really happened was everything failed. And that's really due to this kind of excess leverage um, and this kind of bank run mentality. And you have to kind of ask yourself, if you're worried about that, what's, you know, what were the causes of that? And I think for that to happen, you need excess leverage in the system. Um, and you need a lack of transparency for anyone to call it out. So th- if, if that's what you're worried about, that's what you need. Those are the, those are the key ingredients. If you're worried that momentum is going to sw- you know, you know, swing back and forth and what that means to the ability of managers to provide systematic returns to you, that's a slightly different question. And yes, I think it's legitimate to worry about that. But that's not what August 2007 was about. So, so I mean, it seems like a lot of things changed. Uh, I mean, you mentioned that a lot of things changed since then. But I mean, like maybe on a scale of one to 10, how worried are you about a repeat of something like this? I would say probably a three to four. Um, you know, I think we have seen in a low and volatility environment that there is some pickup in leverage. Um, I don't think we're anywhere close to the ranges that we were. I think the transparency um, is much better. I think people have a much greater understanding uh, of what is happening uh, and, and the risks that are associated with this. I think we've seen people diversify their sources of returns and alpha streams, if you will. I think people are much running much more risk-aware portfolios and accessing liquidity in different ways. So it certainly could happen, um, but it would require some wholesale changes that, again, in people kind of going back to bad behaviors and unlearning lessons. And so I don't think that's likely at this point. Hey, Matt, were you there through the end of Lehman Brothers? Did you stay, you know? I was there through the bitter end uh, and made the transition over to Barclays. You did? I did. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, I will never forget those those nights of, you know, um, that Sunday night before we declared bankruptcy, um, you know, and just kind of the whole uncertainty and my friends and my team and I packing our boxes, you know, with the rumors of the computers being shut down mm-hmm. and us all being locked out. It, you know, it was certainly, um, you know, a very uh, traumatic experience and 
with none of us knowing what to expect. Um, um, but you know, uh, we survived, and the financial system survived, and our team survived, in, in you know, in you know, a, a, an amazing measure to kind of live again and continue on at Barclays. Yeah, yeah. I, I forget offhand was did Barclays buy the division you were in? I forget how it all. I know some of Lehman's parts got bought. So was that one of them? Is that what happened? Yes, uh, yeah. we were in North America, and Barclays bought the North American. Uh, assets of Lehman Brothers, yeah. um, the European assets uh, and Asian assets, uh, kind of divisions of the firm, were, were bought by Nomura. And so it was a little traumatic to my team because we had parts of my team in Asia and uh, in Europe, and so all of a sudden we weren't working at the same firm anymore. Um, hmm. But, uh, you know, and so, you know, people I work with every day was, uh, were, were gone, right. different firm. Um, but the large uh, majority of us were able to stay together. Matthew Rothman is today head of global quantitative equity research at Credit Suisse. Uh, Matt, listen, we really appreciate the time. This is great stuff, so thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Gentlemen, Ben and Chris, thank you for stepping in for Stephen Grosser, who says that he's stuck on a subway somewhere underneath the ground, but I I wonder about that. I wonder about that guy. (laughs) I wonder about his dedication to Money Beat. I don't trust him. What do they say about the, Pete? The good thing is he'll never hear this, too, so I don't have to worry about my criticisms. Calling in on a Monday, right? If you're Call late on a Monday, always exactly. suspect. Exactly. Always suspect. I don't trust him. So <laughs> we'll just have to wait until next time. Everyone, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Enjoy our podcast? Then listen in your car. Before you start down the road, just sync your smartphone using Bluetooth or plug into the USB port. Got Apple CarPlay? Just tap on the podcast app and search for WSJ. So, the next time you're getting behind the wheel, take us along and enjoy the ride. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously.